Hello and welcome to the Courage to Be podcast, where we explore how to raise your game, lean into discomfort and have more impact and purpose. I am your host, Sinead Millard. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the third episode of season three. I am beyond excited to share with you today's guest, Dr. Stephen C. Hayes, who is a foundation professor of psychology at the University of Nevada, Reno. He is the author of 46 books, including his most recent book, A Liberated Mind, which is a big focus of today's conversation. I came across Stephen's work, I guess it's about nine months ago now, and my first encounter was a conversation that he was having um, on a podcast and I just resonated with everything he had to say. I started to kind of binge listen to all the content that Stephen had out there and went on to order his book, A Liberated Mind. And for me, Stephen, Stephen's work, he says so Stephen is a founder of ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, which will become much clearer in today's conversation. But it was somebody who had quite an immediate impact in my life. So I started to apply the work that Stephen laid out in his book into my life and, and saw the immediate impact of doing that. If I was to maybe summarise what Stephen's work has meant for me in very layperson terms, and Stephen will go on to share this far more eloquently and in more detail, but for me, it's about moving towards those really uncomfortable feelings and knowing that where we hurt, um, we care. So there's a sweetness in that hurt um, and there's insight in that hurt. And as we become more open to feeling, um, because I think I am quite comfortable with thinking and less comfortable with feeling, um, I started to really see the impact that that was having. And as I became more curious about some of the more painful feelings or uncomfortable moments um, I started to feel that sense of empowerment um, that comes with accepting um, not just the good um, but the the less uh, less pleasurable moments um, which in turn enabled me to choose more wisely um, and more intuitively and yeah I, I really hope that this conversation enables you to start to play with Stephen's work. I'll include the link to Stephen's book which is available on Amazon in the show notes um, and yeah that's it I'll hand you over to my conversation with Stephen. Stephen welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here with you. Stephen, I came across your work more recently. Um, my first encounter was a conversation you had with Jonathan Fields on the Good Life Project. Oh, yeah. And yeah, very early on in that conversation, you said something that really stayed with me. And that was, we need to do better at feeling. And in a world that is very often telling us how to get better or how to do better, what does it mean? to do better at feeling? Well, I think it means first to stop running away, to sort of plant your feet, to pause, to look and to begin to acquire some skills to, to open up and to deepen and to enter on purpose. Because feelings um, swoop by when we don't have 
full choice as to whether or not they will show up just as you might if you reached out with your hand and felt the table in front of you or the desk in front of you. But if you slow down and you focus, you can feel the desk in front of you in a different way, in a way that is more sensitive and more uh, connected. And that is something that life uh, doesn't insist that you learn, but you pay a cost if you don't. And you pay a cost in terms of not being able to be guided by your own history, misreading your history, and because of that, misreading the environment that you're in, not knowing what you really want, not knowing whether or not you're headed in the right direction. And so, you know, we have such a strong emphasis on feeling good and such a weak emphasis on feeling good. And it um, can distort to the point where we get lost. And um, sometimes uh, uh, don't have a clear pathway forward. So it's, it, it's an important skill. And in the modern world, when we're getting buffeted really with things that do cause feelings, and if we were to stop and pause and deepen, some of them are especially painful. Um, it's really easy to um, almost deliberately not feel uh, very much like if you had sand on your desk and almost deliberately you don't put your hand there you don't see the suffering around you or the injustices around you the, the fear around you or the uh, uh, you know unfairness around you uh, and within you so that's what i mean is uh, taking the time to learn to be more fully who you are and in your most recent book, A Liberated Mind, Stephen, you deliver an incredible presentation, which I'm really excited to share with the audience of your, if I may say, your life's work, um, developing acceptance and commitment therapy. Can you give us a layperson's introduction to acceptance and commitment therapy? Yeah, it's a, well, at one level, it's a collection you just say the usual thing, a collection of acceptance and mindfulness processes and commitment and behavior change processes that are designed to help you be more psychologically flexible. But that kind of doesn't necessarily say much. Really, I think another way to think about it is it's a, a set of things that you can do that are based on a 40-year-long journey of a science community and a caring professional community to try to dig down underneath how the human mind works and to see how it can narrow our vision, how it can feed us outcomes that are positive but feel empty of achievement and applause and approval and uh, uh, notifications and external things. And instead to dig down to a deeper level of being able to feel what you think, feel what you feel, think what you think, but with a sense of perspective so that you have some freedom there as to what to do with it, to come into the present moment, which is the only place we ever are, but to do it consciously, what's going on inside, what's going on outside, what, what does my history bring to this very moment? And then use that flexibility to 
direct, just like turning a flashlight from one direction to another direction to what do you really want to be about? What do you really want to put into your life's moments right now? What do you want to reflect in the choices you're about to make right now and over the intermediate future and the long future uh, that uh, create a trajectory for you of the kind of person that you want to be and the kind of values you want to manifest and then build the question comes when you see that you see that lighthouse in the distance you see that pathway forward are you willing to create the kind of behavioral habits actually take the steps so that you get to move in that direction you'll probably never 100% get there none of us will ever be all that we can be or you know, be fully who we can be, no matter how far you reach, you can reach a little more, but at least you can um, walk out of the hell of uh, not knowing your purpose and sort of sitting, uh, uh, waiting for your life to start. Okay, so th- there's a lot there to unpack, Stephen, and I, I'm at, here, I feel like you've touched on, like the book is organized around developing six psychological skills that clinical research shows promote flexibility, um, psychological flexibility. So I would love, like the big thing that I found in reading the book was that I, it felt very, the pace in which I felt like I could learn and understand the skills that you have kind of referred to in summary there um, kind of blew my mind a little bit and my capacity to kind of start playing with them in my life straight away. And I'd love for the audience to get that same feel in this conversation. And maybe that's a stretch, but let's give it a go. But I think if we need your help, I may need your help, you know, because I worked for 11 years on that book and I worked so hard. I'm so pleased you said it. Actually, the first person who's talking about the book who said that, where we deliberately tried to pace it in such a way that the reader was never overwhelmed. And my guess is probably that little rant I just did, although I said it slowly and the words in there I would stick with, probably somewhere in there people are going, I'm not really sure I get this. And when you, uh, if you really want to use these uh, six processes that all fit together, you do have to learn them in uh, bite-sized chunks. Yeah, yeah, great. And I think maybe as a foundation, before we go into the six skills, we could maybe talk to the term psychological flexibility, because it wasn't a term that I was familiar with before reading the book, and maybe find a way to introduce that to the audience. Yeah, there's some other ones out there. Emotional agility, it's a little narrower, but that uh, Susan David is kind of an act person in business, uh, found another way to say it. But uh, by psychological, maybe the part of it is just that. I mean, all I really mean is your mental life. I mean, and and your and what you do. I mean, you living your life with your history here in this situation. Um, that's all that's meant by psychology. And, and but all the things that that contain is your memories and your hopes and desires and dreams and fears and thoughts and. Uh, and habits and roles and on and on it goes. So the flexibility part is to be able to bend with your history and the current situation 
to accommodate that, to learn from that, to take in what's happening right now. What does my history have to say to me right now without domination, without dictation, without that part of you just taking over? And next thing you know, it's an angry outburst or a mindless choice or a, a mistake that you've done repeatedly. You know that's a mistake, but somehow or another, without thinking, you did it again. You picked the wrong person to date or you said no when you really meant to say yes. And to try to bring the kind of awareness skills and skills of openness so that you can take in those moments and direct them towards where you really want to go anyway. And that combination of, of sort of being open, aware, and actively engaged in creating a life worth living, that's a flexibility skill. It isn't just a brute force skill. If we were to think about this with the metaphor of physical flexibility, it would like you know, be like, you know, being able to take being knocked off balance, to come into balance, to come back into the center, and then to take a step or make a move sort of like you might learn in martial arts in jujitsu or in dance or, and there's a psychological dance, there's a life as it's lived dance that that term is about and that's what the the book is about what the work is about and uh, you know it's a, a large community of nearly ten thousand people working for 40 years three four thousand studies and um, trying to learn how do you put that into human lives and we find when when in that process using western science tools a lot of that wisdom is wisdom we already have. We have it in our culture. We have it in our spiritual religious traditions. We have it in our books, our movies. But somehow or another, you know, our analytic judgmental mode of mind can easily encourage things that are uh, cotton candy and not really sustaining or that are mindless and oriented in the wrong directions. So being able to detect that and change that is some of what we can bring to the table. And can I introduce a practical example here, Stephen? Imagine I have the thought that um, I am a failure. Yeah. And um, what would be, just to turn it on its head a little bit, what would be perhaps a psychologically rigid way to handle that thought? Well, a rigid way would be to immediately think that your job is to deny it or change it. In order to be able to live well, you'll have to deny that it's a failure. Or you have to change that so it's not a failure. Or you have to not think that in the first place. You have to correct it, erase it, diminish it, hide it, you know, quickly. Where, in fact, there's probably things inside that thought that are useful to you. Right inside that thought, I'm a failure, might be a reminder of some places where you have not fully stepped up to challenges, for example. Or... Even if it's not so, and it's just there because either you yourself or somebody else created it, that connects you to the suffering of others. There's other people around you who are doing the same thing. And some of them will look to you someday. It could be your children who says, 
you know, mom, I think I'm a failure. And if you have no idea what to do with a thought like that, how to respond to a thought like that, how to bend without breaking, how to take it in and pivot, take that energy that's inside it. One of the energies that's inside a thought like I'm a failure is trying to understand yourself, trying to have everything fit together. Well, part of what we teach in the act work is your mind is such a wild horse with so many different thoughts that to try to clean up your cognitive ecology and only think one thing is a fool's errand. Uh, it's like trying to tidy up a spider web. No sooner do you move one little part of the web that you're all entangled with another part. And you've probably experienced this. Even four-year-olds will understand the cartoons of... Uh, you know, goofy on one shoulder with um, a halo and goofy on the other shoulder with horns. I mean, if you were to say, no, I'm not a failure, you'll hear a little whisper. But what about this? What about that time? Oh, no. But what about this? Yes, but what about that? But this, but that, but this, but that, and nothing. You know, you're, you're only half aware of even where you are. You're into some sort of mental argument. And by the way, once you're in the argument, in a way, you lose because it's not going to turn into a peace of mind serenade. It, this argument will continue endlessly. And if you want to start the argument, you can start it with, I'm a failure, but you can start it of, I'm kind, I'm loyal, I'm trusting, I'm loving all the time with everyone, you liar, and you know it. So these kind of self-judgments are an example of one where the mind tells you you're, you have to figure out what's really true with a capital T truth. You have to clean it all up and you have to only think the nice ones, the good ones, or the right ones and correct ones. When really what you need to do is to take what's useful and leave the rest, to be able to be open and to notice, not just that you have a thought, I'm a failure, but that you're thinking right now. There's an action going on that you don't fully control. It's very automatic. It's programmed. It's historical. Mary had a little, blondes have more. It doesn't matter that that last one is sexist. It still shows up in your mind. It just is there because it's in your culture. And so if we can't learn how to be open to our own programming, but to be able to take a step back that's not defensive, but perspective taking, like stepping back from a painting on the wall so that you can see it, and then allow it to be simply a thought, not to diminish it or eliminate it, but to allow it to be what it actually is. It isn't what it says it is. It's a string of words that showed up in your head because you either heard them or generated them, and it claims way more territory. And those things will echo through your life. I mean, the, the most horrific thought, will go, you'll go to the grave with it. I mean, your most horrific memory is never going to go away. There's no delete button in your brain that's healthy. Brain injury, don't be praying for that. So... It's a, the logical things we do are not psychologically wise. When we try to diminish, let's say you, you have a thought like, I'll just think this instead of thinking I'm a failure. Okay, now you have to look to see if when you think this, did it get rid of the thought I'm a failure? 
Now you've created a neurobiological street, a little groove, a little pathway from this positive thought to that negative one you're trying to make less central and less important. Guess what? That means it's more accessible, it's more central, and it's more important. If it were important, why are you trying to do that? And if it's not central, why are you going from something way over here to back over there? So it's not logical, it's psychological, and you better have a theory that helps you do the uncommon sense. We call it an act of fusion. It's a made-up word. It means to be able to look at the process of thinking with a little bit of separation so you can make choices about what to do with the products of thinking. And mindfulness training and so forth has been doing that for the millennia. We've figured out ways to do it, and I can name a few just to get the sense of it that you can do in 30 seconds. Yeah, please do, because this is just to clarify, this is taking us on to the first skill set as it relates to the various different processes that underpin ACT. Is that correct? Yeah. So let's just play around with, let's say you have a thought like I'm a failure and you step out of, I need to subtract it, diminish it, eliminate it. And you step into, I need to see it as it is, which is a thought. Well, how about if you say the thought again, but now let's do it really slowly. I'm a failure. How about if you do it in the voice of your least favorite politician? How about if you have that thought in a Donald Duck voice? I'm a failure. How about if you say the word failure repeatedly over and over again? How about if you remind yourself what failure would read if it was spelled backwards? How about if you uh, imagine failure is written on a leaf and you allow it to float by you like on a stream not to get rid of it, but to notice that thoughts come and go. And if it comes back, we'll put it on the stream again. You know, that we've developed hundreds of these methods, and I teach people how to develop them, and they send me things. I get pictures of people, you know, going to the county fair in their T-shirts that say in big, bold letters, I'm a failure. Uh, or wearing little caps with, I'm a failure on it. I, <laughs> you know, uh, I get people with their drawings and cartoons that they, of, with failure built into it that they put on their, on their desk. There's a lot of things you can do with I'm a failure other than run from it, hide from it, fear it, argue with it, believe it, do what it says, argue and don't do what it says. And am I saying that you should do all those things? No, no. The purpose of doing all those things is so not, now you have a choice. What do you want to do with the thought of a failure? One of the things you might do is notice that it showed up right here, right now. Why? I bet you something's going on. I don't mean figure it out. Why? I don't mean entering into a deep, you know, philosophical argument, but just notice, just notice failure thoughts come up in certain circumstances. Here's an example. It may come up because there's something that is actually important. Is that your enemy to know that something's important? Suppose it it comes up when you go on first dates with people where you have a sense they might actually 
be interesting. I'm not saying they does for you, but let's say somebody, somebody listening, probably it does for them. We could imagine that it might. In other words, self-doubts and self-judgments show up when opportunities show up that might be of importance. Wouldn't that be common? Well, then could we allow it sort of like if somebody's bringing a message to you that's important, but they are wearing very stinky clothes and they are rude and they haven't taken a bath for like two months and they come in, but what's in their hands is a note that's really useful to you. A thought like I'm a failure may be like that. And you won't know that if the only thing you want to do is, you know, scream, get out and bar the door and you know, don't even let that person show their face. You wouldn't be able to read the note. The note may be, I, I'm staying with the same example. I yearn for connection. I yearn for intimacy. I have a history that says that doesn't happen easily. And it connects to a whole story that sometimes shows up that's painful. And it includes a thought like, I'm a failure. And what I'm going to do is be kind to myself. And part of the kindness is, is I'm, I'm going to allow myself to think that as a thought and receive the message that's inside it that is more just than what it says. It might be the vulnerability that comes up with caring and wanting and yearning and hoping. So that's an example, and that's why. It's not that we're making fun of ourselves with Donald Duck. We're, it's not ridicule. You're not ridiculous. You're a human being, and that's how the mind works. And we've taken the time to sort of hack the mind enough that we can do these micro skills that you can use to create more psychological flexibility, that big word to just mean the ability to show up your life with what's pushing you around, keep centered and focus on what's important. Yeah, and that analogy that you gave there just reminds me of the wonderful words you used in a liberated mind and the struggles that we have contains an energy that is sweet. And I just, I, I really love that because I think it's, oh, there's one thing which is like almost, there was so, as you were talking about the various different examples of perhaps wearing a t-shirt that kind of has that difficult or uncomfortable thought on it, um, I started to imagine almost bringing the thought closer, which just felt kind of almost paradoxical to what I've learned in life, which is I don't feel like turning towards the pain, but that it's, it's almost like we're bringing all of this right in close. Um, am well, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's my, well, that's my visual. <laughs> yeah. One of our exercises is to write down that thought, let's say, write it on a card, put it in your back pocket or in your purse and carry it with you for a week and deliberately take it out periodically and read it and see if you can read it with a sense of openness and kindness. As if to say, hello, thought, uh, come along with me for the journey. Hello, my old friend. You know, it, it, it's not going away. You will have thoughts. If you regularly have thoughts, I'm a failure. You will be my age and I'm 72 and you're going to have thoughts that I'm a failure. Why? Because that's how the mind works. Now, it may not be as frequent. I'm not saying, oh, just accept it. You have to tolerate it. I'm not, this is not a sad story. I'm just saying that 
you know, our programming is in our history. Our history comes with us. It wouldn't be healthy to try to run away from your history. Why? Because it would mean that there's no source of wisdom now. I mean, your experience is your source of wisdom. You will never get better if you can't learn from experience. You're never going to be more able to to care, to love, to open up, to do what you really want to do. You have to learn those things. You don't leap out of the womb knowing how to do them. And so if you don't know how to carry your history, even the painful parts, then you don't know how to grow. And that's too high a cost, way too high a cost. So... Let's find a way, and I like your image of actually bringing it close. I mean, I could imagine literally kind of holding it to your close to your body, noticing what your body does when it's held close, putting it in your shirt pocket, literally hold it close. And it, you know from a liberated mind, I, I make the case that all of the main things we do that are toxic, and we've set, settled it down to the big six, the six inflexibility processes contain inside them a deep human yearning, a need that's being mismanaged. And when you see it, you can be a lot more kind to your anxiety or to your mindlessness or to your pretense and self-story, to your ego, to your procrastination, to these various reflections of inflexibility processes, you can be more kind to yourself because you see that underneath that problem is an energy that you can actually use. And if you can channel it properly, you know that, you know, that part of you, let me use an example, a really common thing. If you've been betrayed in some way in love, and now you're opening the door again. You're, you're, you're trying to sort of move out again. You probably know, notice how you almost deliberately screw things up. You start fights and you don't understand why. You build walls when you really want to take them down. You don't answer the phone. You don't think ahead for the thing you might do. You defend yourself because you had that, I'll never be so vulnerable and ignorant and innocent again after the betrayal happened. Yeah, but that defense contains an energy inside it of a yearning for connection and intimacy. That's why it hurt. So instead of defending, could you put down the defenses and connect to the hurt, but now channel it in a direction? that has a chance of giving you what you really want. And so the openness to feeling, that metaphor of reaching out to your desk, isn't there just because you're self-absorbed and wallowing in feelings. It's there so that when you need to sense what's inside, even your painful moments, you can take what's inside there and channel it because you will wake up, you will move forward, you will uh, see possibility. If you knew that, for example, your defensiveness was really just a sweet, sad reflection of your yearning for connection, it's a lot easier to put it down. It's not needed. 
I get you want to defend yourself, but why? Because this is where you can hurt. Why? Because this is where you really care. This is what you really want. And you don't want to not want know what you want. That's not wise. If you're ever going to have committed intimate relationships, you need to know that you want them. But that's puts you right close to the places where it's painful. So it's in all of these inflexibility processes, they contain an energy within that will be your ally. If you can find a way to relate to them in a way that they don't dominate and dictate to you in the normal way, but instead can be channeled in a new way. That's the subtitle of that book, how to pivot towards what matters. It's like taking the energy in a door hinge, where the French word pivot came from. You push the door in one direction and that hinge swings it open in another direction. And in the same way, we can take our problems and we can find our purpose. And I think that takes us nicely, Stephen, to our second skill, and particularly as you refer to the word pivot, which is self. And I'm really conscious I want to, I, I do want to follow that that process to a certain extent, because I think there's so much value in it. But yet there's a lot that we can cover as we discuss them. But um, yeah, what what can we share about self? Well, the storied self, the conceptualized self, the verbally encapsulated self, the one that is judged, evaluated, criticized, pridefully displayed, you know, the good, bad, and indifferent storied self is a kind of a side effect. It's a, a personality that we put forth. But right in that word is what it is. I mean, personality comes from the Greek word persona, which means the clay mask that the theater actors wore in Greek theater. They're the clown suit we climb into. I'm like this. Whether it's good, bad, or indifferent doesn't matter. It's a clown suit. It's not the whole of who we are. It's what we're presenting to ourselves and others. It's pretend. And uh, it will create barriers. If what you're yearning for inside this uh, sense is connection and belonging, what is your role in this community? I mean, we are the social primates. And even babies, brand new, will recognize human eyes, will move their eyes towards those human orbs, those eyes, and will dump natural opiates when eyes meet. I mean, within the first days of life, if mom or dad comes up and says, oh, you sweet baby, that baby is dumping natural opiates in its brain. And by the way, so is mom and dad. And the only other creature that does that is dogs. And they've been hanging around with us for a long time. And so we are the ones who are built for connection. We yearn for that. And the self that you present is a way, I think, of creating belonging. You say, you need me because I'm smart. I'm pretty, I'm able, I'm loyal, I'm kind, I'm loving, I don't lie, etc. Or, I'm so needy, I'm so helpless, I'll otherwise I'll starve, please let me in. Either way, 
that story itself that earns its way in because you're in need or because you're Guy Grand, either of those in a way are not the whole of you. And when people bring you in because of that, you immediately feel as though maybe you don't belong in the group. If you've ever tried to kind of create a relationship based on trying to look really good on those first few dates, if that's ever happened to you, and then you have that thought of, he doesn't really know me, or if she knew who I was, she would never want to be with me. This is one of those things where it shows the terrible cost of buying into these inflexibility processes, in this case, the conceptualized self, because you use it as a way to get what you really want. And instead, what you get is the tiny taste of it that then goes away. You're included, you're brought in, but you did it by pretense. You did it by falsehood and you kind of know that. And next thing you know, you feel as though it will be taken away or that you fooled people. But if you fooled people, who's going to be lifted up by the caring and love uh, of fools? Uh, so we take that yearning for, for belonging and instead, what would it be like? How would we do what we did when we were six days old, built out into our adult lives? And what you'd start with is connecting in consciousness to others. That's how belonging started. And we're neurobiologically set up to recognize that as a connection. That's why those endorphins were dumped in. Because it's critical that a baby know and that mom know. Otherwise, you wouldn't have that baby who's helpless be taken care of, be fed, be clothed, etc. That never would have happened. So could, what would you do as adults? Well, you might do some things like take the perspective of the other person. Share with them your perspective. If you know that it's safe, open that door and let them know a little bit about what's it like to be you on the inside. Why would you do that? Because it that's how you create real connections, shared values and vulnerabilities is how intimacy happens. And your mind may be screaming, don't let them in, don't let them in. They might see something, they'll push out. Yeah, but it's also your heart's yearning for something that's real. And it isn't a pretend clown suit. So in a liberated mind, I try to walk through some of the Small things you can do maybe to begin to open up to another sense of self that's more ineffable. It's pure awareness, but not awareness alone in the uh, corner, but the kind of awareness that allows you to connect in conscious consciousness to other people at other places at other times and kind of expand out your awareness to the inherently social kind of being that you are. I'm sitting here talking to you, but I've had flickers of thoughts because I found out, uh, I may have a hard time talking about this, but I found out yesterday that my sister has COVID. Oh, I'm sorry. And she's in a hospital right now. And she has MS and she's bedridden and she's old like me. And she's not here on the computer in front of me. 
She's not here on the desk I have my hand on. But she's here with me in my words to you. And that's the kind of creatures we are. And uh, is that pull to cry at the challenge, the life-threatening challenge my sister is facing, is that a reflection of the love I feel towards my sister, you think? Yeah. It doesn't come any other way. Love isn't hearts and flowers only. It's that bittersweet quality of when you look at your children and you know they're going to make mistakes. You know they're going to be rejected. You know they're going to have illness. You know they will be threatened. You know they'll have failures. And you pray that they'll be able to right themselves and not end up, you know, as nothing more than a suicide note or nothing more than a an addiction that they can't walk out of, yeah? So the sense of self-peace is this, that we can bring out with small exercises, is that deeper sense of awareness that you started with, scaled to an adult scale, so that consciousness itself can be part of what you mean when you say I, and then you're about to describe something, but the I that's aware is just that. And by the way, that I, that part of you is beyond evaluation. It could never be a failure, nor can it be a success in the way we normally think about it. It just is. There's a part of you that is just being and loving and nothing else. It's just awareness. And if you plant your feet firmly there, you don't have to play for earning your way into the group. You're already into the group. Your mom and dad brought you in. Even if you had abusive parents, somebody looked in your eyes and said, oh, you sweet baby, or you would never have learned how to even understand what I'm saying right now. So you don't need a ticket into belonging. It's a birthright. And if you were the last person on the planet, the very last one, you'd still be thinking of others. Oh, I wish they were here to see this. Look how beautiful that sunset is. I wish I could share it. Come from there and it gets a little less scary. If you're rejected, the whole of you won't be rejected. If you're betrayed, the whole of you won't be betrayed. You'll still be you. So that, the how to, how to move there, well, the mindfulness traditions, the spiritual traditions, but many, many little exercises, and there's some in the liberated mind and more in the books, not just on ACT, but in this whole wing of work, this Western science work of trying to dig into the human psyche and uh, give people tools they can use that are science-based, uh, begins to open up. And Stephen, I'm, I'm thinking of a thought that my listeners might be having or may not, but perhaps they're saying, I want to bring my whole self to my work. I want to show more of who it is I am, but 
in the context of the organization in which I work, I don't know that I will be accepted or um, it's, you know, yeah, I guess that I'm, I'm thinking of myself as a young graduate entering into my first role in corporate. And without even knowing it, I was just molding myself into the culture and doing what it is I needed to do. And I had this aspiration to kind of do do something. I say do something, which kind of quickly moved into kind of achieve and achieve and and it took maturity and it took experiences to kind of get clear on that but I guess to those people who feel like I I hear you and I I want that but I I don't know if that's in my reach yeah that's a thought thank your mind for that thought but that that very thought contains within the the yeah but is a, a a connection with also yeah you wouldn't go, yeah, but if yeah wasn't there. You know, like, I want that. Okay. Okay. And your mind's saying, I don't know how to. Well, that's probably because you don't know how to. And it's saying, but I, this might happen. Well, that's a part of you that says the word but means be out. It means your mind's saying that you could only open yourself up to that if you're really reassured that these other things won't interfere. Well, that's the way the mind thinks. It tries to treat everything as a problem-solving effort. But something like this is more like finding the part of you that's underneath that problem-solving and then connecting to those around you with that part. So if you just look at, for example, you mentioned organizations and businesses. I get if you're in a culture and if you're not the boss, etc. sometimes it's hard to break cultures. But who is it that created the corporate culture where it's go, 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 achieve, 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 you know, where it's uh, rank them and yank them, you know, this horrifying, distorted, sick application of evolutionary thinking that you saw in Enron and the rest, which by the way, crashed the company. And then you look at what is transformational leadership? Why do groups cooperate? Why do they succeed? Go look at the science of that. The late Lynn Ostrom won a Nobel Prize in 2009 and her principles as to why cooperate, how that happens. She won the Nobel for it because she showed that it isn't just greed is good, invisible hand, or command and control. There's a third pathway, a middle pathway of we and community working together for a common value. And I've written a book on, on Lynn Ostrom's principles and linked them to my own called ProSocial with a major evolutionary biologist, David Sloan Wilson a huge, uh, well-known evolutionist and a psychologist, uh, Paul Atkins, which I might be able to expand on this. But if you are able, let's just take a little micro moment. Suppose you're saying, let's say you have your group table where you're talking about your plans and how things are going and things aren't going well. And, you know, people are doing their department reports and their group reports and whatever, and they're all showing off and trying to whatever. And if you were to actually say, you know, like, this is really important to me. And I'm, you know, beyond the fact of just getting this task done, I think it really fits into the kind of corporate values that we have. It's a, This is important. And, 
you know, sometimes when things like that show up, I have thoughts like, I don't know if I can do it. And I have feelings like, oh, it'd be painful. And I don't know if anybody else has that, but I'll tell you what, here's my intention. My intention is to take those kinds of things and to step into and ask the whole work team to work together and to share those times and not let them show up as barriers. Because I think if we can create a team where we get to be people who can work together honestly, we'll be more likely to accomplish those goals. So here's the way I want to do it. And, and then you get into a plan. I mean, look at what, how people actually organize corporate teams to produce cooperation. Dig into the science of it. And what you're going to find are the processes I'm talking about. You know, transformational leaders know the names of the people in their teams. They know the names of their children. They know the street the person lives on. You know, if you're the kind of leader, if I say, who, where does your secretary live? And you've had that secretary for two years and you have no idea. You don't know if they have kids and you don't know what they do on weekends. I can tell you, you are a less effective corporate player. Because you're not playing it the way humans are designed to work together to get things done. So, okay, I get we've created hostile cultures where it's hard to be whole and free. It's hard to be a whole human being. But we created those freaking cultures. We don't have to organize them that way. And don't tell me you have to to make it succeed. Go read about Enron and see what happens when people just feed this greedy achievement achievement you start getting lied to people no longer tell the truth they hide things from other people for fear that they'll be more successful than you are the whole team gets ripped to shreds when you do that so no it's not a justification and i and i'm not blaming the people who are in inhumane systems but there is now 40, 50 studies, there's large randomized trials and big, huge corporations like Salesforce.com or Goldman Sachs using ACT. And what they show is psychologically flexible workers are more able to help the groups succeed if and only if you create a psychologically flexible workplace. If you put somebody who is open who's cognitively flexible, who's values focused, is willing to step forward, who's conscious of themselves and able to take the perspective of others, that person will be able to be a powerful member of your team, whether it's your church committee or your sales force, but only if you create a safe place where cooperation can happen, selfishness is diminished, where it's okay to be a whole human being in the group and people can come up with ideas, alter their work schedules, change how things are done, talk to the foreman or the boss or the supervisor, suggest things, etc. You know, you, you would create a hostile work environment, you crush people and you also crush your business success. So um, I don't think we need to compromise in this way we can find a way to have it work, have both hands work together and let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. If by extension, how about our politics? How about our homes? 
How about our relationships? How about our neighborhoods? Why not? The science is there, and we can do better than just, this is the way it's always been done. I love this, Stephen. We've we've covered off the first two skill sets, and and I think the third acceptance. I think we have covered in some respects. A bit. You you can correct me if I'm wrong. Allowing ourselves to feel, even when the feelings are painful, or to create a sense of vulnerability. Um, and I'm kind of taking that directly from your summarized version of the book. But is there anything there that is in terms of that practical application um, that you could add to that? To the uh, to acceptance as, to the acceptance as piece, I think we've touched on it enough. I mean, acceptance yeah. actually, although it's it comes first in some ways, it actually also comes last because that kind of emotional openness and and take receiving the gift. It comes from a Latin word that means to receive, and it's barely in English, but it's still there. If you have a precious gift, really precious, like a an heirloom or something, you might give it to somebody with a, a statement, something like, I hope you will accept this. Mm. Why do you say that? It's almost not in English anymore, but it used to be more. And it, what it meant was, would you willingly re- receive? Because it isn't just giving the gift, it's receiving the gift. And it takes that little act of saying yes to the gift. And if something's really precious, we even ask people who are receiving gifts to say yes we want to hear it would you willingly receive the feeling of shame exactly (laughs) what acceptance is is not tolerance resignation putting up with it you don't have any choice so i guess you just have to it's nothing like that it's simply saying yes to your own experience even the ones that your mind then judges as painful negative i wish i didn't have it Okay, mind, I get it. Thank you. But frankly, I am not just a problem to be solved. My life is more like a sunset to be appreciated. And seeing a crying child, I will take time to sit in front and hear the tears. You know, why? Because it connects me in consciousness to things that are of importance. And so when we open up to our fears and our sadness and our betrayals and our failures, We're saying, yes, it's okay to be me. We're saying yes to our own emotions. And right underneath those emotions are the yearnings we have for purpose because we hurt where we care. Duh. Well, if you hurt where you care, then your hurt is a flashlight to caring. And caring will have this challenge. You know that you, if you care, you can be hurt. So, you know, as you get more openness and flexible flexibility to feeling on purpose fully and without needless defense, you empower yourself to choose and step towards what you deep down really want, what you gut level almost intuitively, almost beyond words, deep down really want. And that's the area where values shows up. That's the area where the, the real motivation to create a life worth living shows up. It's not in money and applause and the externals. It's in the intrinsic qualities of your actual behavior, of what you do. By behavior, I don't just mean your muscles. I mean the whole of what you do. And uh, 
uh, trying to be motivated only by the externals just hollows you out. I mean, there's very, very successful people who have uh, gin bottles in the bottom drawer or worse, a silver uh, pistol that speaks to them periodically and sometimes maybe even successfully. Every day, so I, somebody with everything leaves this planet by their own hand. Every day. So be careful of that and try to empower yourself to... You kind of know, actually, if you, we're now to the values pivot. A really good read for a values pivot is it almost is tearful. Think about it and you'll see it. You know, why do we cry at weddings? Why? Why do we cry when children are born? Why? Because we're moved. And that emotion, that motion, that movement, that motivation uh, is a bittersweet quality of I can. It's of importance. And it's so important, it almost brings me to tears. Put that in your life, and then you, it's like putting gasoline into a car. You know, you, you've got some fuel there. It's funny, I actually just had the thought the other day, I was at a surprise 40th birthday and I felt emotional and I was saying to a friend of mine, I always get emotional at, a, at weddings and birthdays. And it's interesting that you use that as an example, because I'd like to take that a little bit further. You said to take that as gasoline. What what do you mean by that? What do we do with that? We, 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 we experience this and we see this as perhaps a piece of information or something that matters to us or something that we value. Yeah. Now what? Well, you know, I, I would say be careful. The first step is be careful for the inflexibility processes that will turn this into something that you grasp at, hold on to, get attached to, or worse, that you defend yourself against for fear of, um, of, of failure and loss. Love and loss comes together. Success and failure comes together. And there's nobody who's successful that hasn't failed multiple times. No one. No one. This doesn't come that way. And there's no one who loves fully and without defense, who can't taste right inside those very moments, the looming loss and how painful it will be. And so step one, notice the mind's attempt to try to give you the, the, the quick, quick way there that grasp at that smaller, sooner reward at the cost of the larger, later one. But then in a conscious way, sort of open up to, what does that tell me about how I want to live my life? If I'm brought to tears at a birthday, let's say, part of it may be appreciating that life is finite. Part of it may be appreciating that people matter. Part of it may be appreciating that celebrations and acknowledgement and community and groups are something sweet. You know, that happy birthday song uh, sung by a group shows something that you yearn for. I want to be in the kind of group where people are keeping track of, this is my birthday, and I want to be there when it's theirs. And I want to sing those songs. I want to appreciate because they're important to me. Now, the 
mind says, oh, you mean they're out there important, imposing on you? No, it took an openness. You had a choice there. You are, if you really wanted to be technically correct, you'd say you are importanting about that. Or you, it isn't that it matters. You are mattering about it because the motivation is in you. And, but the mind sort of flips it and says, watch out, watch out. You know, so you can have the, I'll give you an example. Um, let's say you really care about uh, a cruelty to animals. You really think that this is something that you would like to do something about. There are many, 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 many people with that when the commercial comes on television, I don't know if they have this uh, where you are, but that sort of shows the the dogs that have not been fed and so forth and ask for donations, they change the channel precisely because they're moved. That little moment where you say no instead of saying yes, fed will give no to a business opportunity, no to a love relationship, no to a friendship, no to a hobby, no to relaxation, no to appreciation, no to a sunset, no to a massage, no to a sauna. I mean, it'll, that little no can eventually, if you let it go, the mind can say no to everything that lifts you up and carries you forward. And so if you can flip it, wait a minute, I'm the one. It's not imposing. And yeah, I'm finite. I, I don't have to say yes to everything. But is there enough love in the world or enough values in the world if people are empowered to say yes to what they really want to say yes to, that we have enough yeses for the cruelty to animals being dealt with, for the starving children in Africa to be dealt with, for global climate change to be, well, I don't know, but let's find out. And the way we're going to find out is by empowering people to be them, their whole selves, their naturally passionate, caring, vital, values-based self. So I can give you, in a, just a minute, a, a quick way to uh, get to that sense of self. Can I, can I mention one that might be useful to someone? Please do, yeah. Well, here's one, and it's in a liberated mind, but... Uh, I know of only four ways in. You take the sour moments and flip them, and you'll find you're caring. Take a sweet moment and dive into it, and you'll, you'll find you're caring. Find your yearning to write a, a story that has a theme in your life, and in that theme you'll find you're caring. But this fourth one is notice the people that you notice that you admire that you think stand for something that's useful, that provide a, a model for you, or that you would want to be able to guide you in a particular area. And it seems trivial, but it's not. Our heroes are in us. Yeah, they're alive out there somewhere, but their heroic presence 
is only in us. And so if you take an area, pick any area, and allow yourself to really think in a way that's more intuitive and gut level and to allow your mind, not just analytically and judgmentally, but like the whole of you, to settle on a guide or a hero in a particular area or domain. And take the time to think about what shows up when you look at that person. Flip it around and take the time to think of what would that person think if they're looking at me? And then ask your guide for some guidance. Ask that hero to give you a little bit of guidance. How are you going to deal with this difficult situation you're in? Or how are you going to make a choice in this moment? Or what do you really want to be about in this relationship or in work or wherever you are? And then listen to what's said in imagination. But also do this. Look at this person's life and how they carry themselves. You pick them for a reason. And here's the kind of bottom line. What if the way that they are in their life, at least in this domain, somehow reflects the qualities that you would like to see reflected in your life? What if your heroes are heroes because you yearn to reflect in some small way what they stand for to you. We even say the word stand for because the metaphor is almost like that person stands up and says, this is what I'm about. And you kind of yearn to stand up and say, this is what I'm about. So think about that. And if, you, if you're in a place where it's safe or private, I suggest you stand up and say out loud, this is what I want to reflect, at least this. You might have picked somebody who, for example, has shown some courage when dealing with oppression. You might have picked somebody who fought back or who said no to going along when things weren't fair. I'm just imagining this. The Mother Teresa's of the world, let's say. You may not. You might have picked a coach or a therapist or your sister or brother or parent or whatever. But whatever it is, find at least one thing, just one, a feature, a quality that's intrinsic. Not, boy, she had a big car. I bet you that doesn't show up. Lives in a big house. I bet you that's not why. I bet you it's because of how they carried themselves, what they stood for. Stand up if you can see it and give it voice. You know, what I would like to reflect on my behavior, somehow or another, somewhere or another, is this. Well, okay, now you've got a guide. You've got a little flashlight pointing in a direction. What would it take for you to go in that direction now and tomorrow and the day after? You can change it. This is not a you know, a millstone around your neck. You can change it, change it. But when you connect with it, don't change it unless your connection, your gut, your whole self says, mm, I want to tweak that direction a little bit. That's what I'm, we mean by values of uh, taking that yearning for meaning and purpose by choice. Uh, 
It's there, even little kids. Not that way, Mama. I'm going to do it. That, no, I'm going to do it this way. You know, that part of you, that little stubborn, independent part of you is really precious. Give it voice. What do you want to be? Where do you want I, to head? I really um, enjoyed listening to that exercise for a few reasons. I think on the topic of values, very often... I think a starting point for some people is to kind of sit in front of this questionnaire and a big list of values. And, and, and quite frankly, it's, it can be, I'm not saying there's not merit in that. Um, mm -hmm. It's just that, you know, the values you choose, you know, some, they can be aspirational. They can be, it, there's so much to it, but just that simple exercise was just, I mean, I was taking myself through it as you were, as you were explaining it. And it's, it's, yeah, I guess it's just you talk about quality. I love the use of the word quality because then I started to think about respect, yeah. patience. I just started, it was just flipping as opposed to when I look at a list of values, which are like growth, significance, yeah. success. You know, it's just, it's just felt, yeah, that, that felt good. <laughs> Is it uh, too much to ask for you to share a little bit about who you chose? Yeah, no, no, not at all. I actually chose more than one person. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether that's... Pick one yeah, if it's safe uh, and, and only share what would be safe, but I'd be really interested in... No, absolutely. Actually, the first person I chose was my dad. And the first thing that came to mind was his patience um, but and, and his generosity. Um, and then there was this sense I don't know what word I should use to explain it but you know when somebody is just really comfortable in their own skin mm -hmm. and they're kind of very unapologetic um yeah. in a way that's quite soothing actually to be around yeah um it's not and, prideful it's just a whole yeah yeah and then then I found myself asking I was actually sharing I was having lunch with a friend on Sunday and I told her that I was interviewing you today and and um I said I'm actually quite nervous because I'm kind of surprised that he said yes to the conversation <laughs> the conversation he's been on some really big podcasts and um and I kind of had you on a little bit of a pedestal and I continued on and it was funny she thought she was like what what is it in this person that you are kind of quite intrigued by there seems to be and it kind of made me reflect and then I started to think I guess there, there was a little bit of curiosity when you responded to my email and kind of said quite gracefully said that you'd come on to the podcast. And I wondered at that point in time, oh, I wonder what Stephen's highest value is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and maybe that's an, maybe if you were open to, to sharing that, um, because there's something I see in kind of not only the work that you've published, but just in in your way and your openness to share the work that you've done. Um, because you didn't come back and ask me how many downloads I'd have for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, the usual. Um, well, if you're asking me why would I say yes to uh, something like that, it's part of a if you if you see um, my first uh, t TEDx talk, if, yeah. if people, uh, there's a bit.ly link, you know, how bit.ly forward slash, if they put in, um, if listeners put in Steve's first TED, no apostrophes, but you do have to capitalize Steve's and first has a F and then T-E-D have to be capitalized. It'll show up. Uh, and I, I tell that story of finding a terrified little boy underneath the bed listening to my parents fight 
And my dad's drunk and he's threatening violence to my mother. My mother's shrieking at him in a horrible way. And I'm, I'm hearing crashing, loud sounds. And I'm wondering, you know, are they hitting or are, are they hurting each other? Is there going to be blood when I go out the door? And, uh, and a thought comes really clear in my mind. I'm going to do something. And then I realize there's nothing, there's nothing to do that's safe. So I just hold myself and cry as an eight-year-old under the bed. Yeah, but I'm a psychologist. And I tell this story in the TEDx because I so, I so suppressed that I forgot that little guy. In a way, I almost forgot why I'm a psychologist. And... Uh, I got caught up in grants and vitas and publications and promotions and citations and talks and editorial boards and all of the stuff, you know, it's like being part of any group. There's all these markers of quote success. Yeah. And um, in that sort of hollowed out even why I was a psychologist. And it took a panic disorder to bring me to my knees before I had a chance to find my way back to where I started. And it took years, I tell this story in the TEDx talk, first with the anxiety, but then when the whole of me got a sense that I meant it, that I wasn't going to run away, that I would stand with myself, things started showing up that were in a way more vulnerable and more... I could even say more scary, more scary than panic, such as the uh, uh, crying eight-year-old saying, I'm going to do something, yeah? And not knowing that you're up to it, not knowing that you can. And uh, so I tell in that TEDx talk, you know, that I, seeing that years into the act work, three years or so, I made a choice of, um, I'm bringing you with me. So at my best, and sometimes I'm doing it pridefully and just because, you know, maybe I'll get more books sold or whatever the hell shows up, you know, things show up. But at my best, uh, I'm here doing what I'm doing right now um, because I'm going to do something. And I couldn't save my mom and dad from their pain. I had some help benefit to them later on as an adult. I did, especially to my mom. But and my dad died too early from his alcoholism. He was such a wounded duck. He left early. And um, But a loving man, a wonderful man. And um, my mother as well. I mean, did just didn't know how to get out of their own way. But... Uh, but I can darn sure do something about the other folks out there, including some others who are listening right now who are under their bed. So um, it seems worth life energy. Not everyone should be a psychologist, but uh, it's a really, really cool profession if that's what you came to do. That's why. I to like share that. and contribute, I, make a difference. Yeah, 
Yeah. And I think that takes us to a nice place. But I would like to ask you if you were to leave us with the one thing you know to be true about the world, what would it be? I think the world reflects back what we put in it, not in a point to point way, uh, not in a negotiation or transactional way, but in a um, almost in a way that I suppose it's why people use words like karma, that in a confused, difficult, chaotic way, can we put into the world what we deeply yearn for? Can we put love in the world, cooperation in the world, kindness in the world, contribution in the world, creativity, beauty, all these things that we value and do it in a way that's not so mindy and judgmental and comparative and prideful and fearful and hidden. And, and, and you know, we're on a journey. We're on a human journey. And I'm tempted to go into a rant, but I'll do just a tiny mini one. You're standing on the shoulders of people who who walked back slavery. They may have been slaveholders. I'm not saying they all were Simon Pure, but I'm saying humanity walked back slavery. Fewer people starve now than ever in the history of the planet. Fewer people die by violence now than ever in the history of the planet. Fewer people die by disease now than ever in the history of the planet. Don't sell us short. You're just a little molecule in the ocean that's moving energy forward in your tiny little bit of time that you're allocated. But what if life and the world gives back what we put in it? Can we be part of those waves that we would like to see and know that somehow you're part of your children's children's children having a life that's more meaningful, more human, that's kinder, that's more supportive, more creative. They won't know you did it. Just like I don't know who created these machines that I can talk across thousands of miles to you in. I, I don't know who did that or the people who made them. I mean, a, a th tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of people had to do a whole lot of things for this moment to happen this way, for you and I to be able to talk and have all those wires and all those transmit. So don't sell us short. I guess that's all. Um, I don't mean be Pollyanna. I know it's hard and I know we could blow up the planet. I know we could turn into a fascist nightmare. I know we can, you know, allow the earth to warm to the point where it can't be turned back. But I also know that we have hearts that yearn for meaning and purpose. And we have minds that allow us to achieve coherence and to create wonderful things. And we can cooperate. We're the social primates who know how to do that and uh, maybe using all our tools including western psychological science maybe we can turn this ship in the right direction this ship called humanity Stephen thank you so much for joining me thank you for letting me uh, speak with you and thank you for the wonderful space that you've uh, created here 
Thank you so much for listening. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that has resonated with you, or perhaps you think it could benefit someone else, then please do share this link or start the conversation. If you haven't done so already, click on the subscribe button in your listening app. And as always, I really value your feedback. So please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And for more information, full show notes, links and resources, you can pop over to my website, SineadMillard.com. See you next time back here on The Courage To Be.